Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte. I'm here with my co-host, John Kiriakou. We have gotten all the way to Friday, but we still have some going against the grain to do. And there is some fun stuff to talk about today. Yeah, it's going to be a good Friday, I Mm -hmm. think. Yep. Yeah, there's a lot of fun stuff. We've got more economic news. We, of course, are going to talk a little bit about what's going on in Ukraine and and get into a little bit of some of the, you know, there are some days where you have a lot of uh, news, right? And yes. sort of new, urgent information. Today yep. doesn't feel like one of those days. And so today we're going to get into a, a little bit of like lifting lifting the rug up yeah. and taking a peek at some of these things that we've been taking for granted, like this international legion in Ukraine. What? Is it really? Does it actually exist? Yeah. That's a serious question. Yeah. Who are the private contractors working in Ukraine, especially now with the news that a a U.S. Marine veteran appears to have been killed in uh, combat over there working for one of these contractors that I do not see uh, having been named? Yeah, we are, of course, going to get into uh, some U.S. politics later in the show in the second hour. But um, I want to start talking about media a little bit. Yes, because there were well, there was, you know, another day, another hit piece on anyone who is not towing the Atlantic Council line. Yes. Uh, And also more news of uh, avenues of financial support for independent media being cut off. Let's start with the Daily Beast. Yeah. Talk about a hit piece. Yeah. You know, I'm looking at this thing and most of these people are our friends. Yeah, we know these people. We know a lot of them. Some of them I disagree with. Or some of them I, you know, mostly agree with. Some of them I would say I mm-hmm. mostly disagree mm-hmm. with, right? But it, this is a hit piece on six independent media figures, right? And the Daily Beast tells us these propaganda peddlers rake in cash and followers at the expense of the truth and oppressed people in Ukraine, Xinjiang, and Syria. And so unsurprisingly, these people, their targets are people who are critical of NATO, critical of the U.S. role in the wars in Ukraine and Syria, critical of mainstream coverage of those wars, critical of some mainstream coverage of China. As I said, I don't agree with everything that all of them write, but I do have a lot of respect for most of them. And they are are all smeared as lovers of dictators, peddlers of propaganda. And this is, I mean, that they're greedy, that they're in it for the money. Unlike, uh, I don't know, Chuck Todd or Rachel Maddow or Chris Cuomo or Sean Hannity, for that matter, or Tucker Carlson or George Stephanopoulos. No, it's Lee Camp is the guy who's out here greedy, making tons of money from his Patreon. Right. Lee Camp, the comedian and political commentator who was fired from RT. You've got to be kidding me with this. And and it's said like with with a tone of jealousy. Oh, yeah. uh, Because, I mean, we know Lee Camp well. He's a friend of. Sure. Of ours. This is a an extraordinarily hardworking guy, right? Comedy is hard work. And he's doing his best to make a living. Mm-hmm. Why in the world would somebody begrudge him the fact that he has 150,000 followers on Twitter? Yeah. I say God bless. Yeah. If you can find thousands of people to pay you on Patreon, go for it, man. But again, just the idea that the big bucks in media mm-hmm. are in bucking the mainstream. Right. Is idiotic. Right. That is simply not the truth. It's when idiotic. the big bucks are are very demonstrably elsewhere. Look at the battle Chris Cuomo's in right mm-hmm. now to get what twenty million extra yeah, 20, dollars from his contract. Thirty million. Yeah. Exactly. The, no, these we are should the greedy, all be mainstream. These are the greedy guys. 
I want to talk about two other aspects of, of this piece. One, uh, the writer is uh, Matthew Foresta, right? His first name's Matthew. I, he says, I've been publicly critical of many of these figures before, but my own frustrations are not the problem. Those who are harmed, who really suffer, are the people in Ukraine, Syria, and Xinjiang. Their stories and pleas are often ignored in the light of misinformation. And this is one of the most telling lines in the whole piece, because again, as I said, you are talking about six dissenting voices here, mm-hmm. right? A couple of whom have recently been dumped from the the largest platforms they had, which again are dwarfed by some of these other mainstream platforms. And so this sliver of the media spectrum that you can still access in the United States that is talking about Ukraine or Syria or China, that is what is harming the people of those countries, not the actual wars themselves, not the weapons that the United States has been funneling into these conflict zones, not our NATO ally Turkey, for example, occupying part of Syria, not us arming al-Qaeda, admittedly, for years No, the real harm to Syrians and Ukrainians is that you can read the gray zone online. And Mm -hmm. that means that the pleas of the people of Ukraine and Syria and Xinjiang are ignored in the light of misinformation. The implication here is is that, you know, they the dissenting voices are getting too much attention. And if you feel that the Russia can do no right, Ukraine can do no wrong camp is not getting enough attention in U.S. media. I mean, you were not living on the same planet or you are simply lying, right? Because you simply cannot look at the coverage of this war and go, boy, victims and civilians in Ukraine are not getting enough attention. I mean, whether or not you you sympathize with them is one thing, but that is simply that is just farce, right? And these voices we are talking about, again, as of yet, I think, unfortunately, have no influence on U.S. policy. So this is just an excuse to try to stomp out anyone who wants to try to take a different point of view, to argue a different point, you know, uh, sing a different tune. What is it? You know, there's that statement about uh, feminism. My feminism will be intersectional. This is really like my media environment will be 100 percent propaganda or it will be bullcrap. Yeah. Right. Right. This is the new rallying cry. And of course, an aspect of this hit piece is the writer going to YouTube and Twitter and Facebook and Patreon as a journalist to ask why they aren't banning these alternative points of view more forcefully. And the social media sites have all said, look, this this content does not violate our policies. And then they all took the opportunity to say, don't worry, we've shut down lots. YouTube says uh, we've taken down 30,000 videos for violating our policies. You know, terrific. Patreon says it's trying to strike a balance between free expression and safety and only takes actions on accounts when misinformation demonstrates an immediate capacity to hurt people. Patreon said it's specifically banned what it calls COVID-19 and QAnon disinformation in light of this, but say this policy does not apply to dishonesty around Ukraine or Xinjiang denialism. These are the words of the writer. And again, this gets to something that I was alluding to yesterday, John. There is a tactic here now and a cohort of people who are trying to suggest that offering alternative points of view, or I was trying to think of a way of describing it, uh, giving the benefit of the doubt to unpopular players at the moment, right, is the same as a threat to safety 
or imminent harm, right? That it's the same as violence. And I think this is a this is obviously something that is being attempted now. And I think that it is really dangerous. And I think it's important to be mindful of. I was so offended by this article. Not just because so many of these people are our friends, but because the author and his name escapes me. I'm going to go back Matthew to the, Forrest. Matthew Forrest. Um, Foresta. Um, he cherry picks things. He presents uh, innuendo as fact. For example, he criticizes uh, Samira Khan from RT. Um, that's fine. You can criticize Samira I, Khan. I, I disagree with a lot. Very different from Samira Khan. Very Khan's, different. Yeah. I, I disagree a lot with Samira Khan. But Samira Khan's been off the air for four years. Yeah. Why are you criticizing her now? Yeah. And you lump her in with Lee Camp. You know? Yeah. Again, well, who, who has pretty different politics, too? Totally different politics. Mm -hmm. Then they go on to Max Blumenthal. Mm -hmm. um, Max Blumenthal, they accuse of having gone on a junket. Right. This is the word they use, a junket to Damascus. And he actually attended a seminar that was presided over by Bashar al-Assad. And then you're supposed to draw your own conclusions. Well, Bashar al-Assad, he gassed his own people, didn't he? Well, actually, no. He didn't. The, the Western media said that he did. And then when the, the uh, whistleblowers from the, what's it called? The OPCW uh, came out and said, look, you know, our conclusion was that we, we couldn't say that this was the Syrian government that, that gassed these people. Or even that there was a gas attack. Um, the, the Western media walked away from it. Say, well, you know, we're, we're never going to know the truth of this. Yeah. Well, here in this stupid article, it's presented as Max Blumenthal's an apologist for Bashar al-Assad, who gassed his people. It's always the line. Yeah. Always. Always the it's line. It's really offensive. And again, if you go back and look at, you know, look at reporting from the early 2000s, it was who, who did you love then? You loved Saddam Hussein, right? Yeah, and before that, it would be like, oh, you love, you know, whatever, people doing slaughter in Southeast well, Asia. Well, it's, it's funny that they say, how can you support uh, Russia instead of Ukraine when Ukraine is a small country that was invaded by a larger one. Okay, well, where were you when we invaded Iraq? Were you standing up for the Iraqi people? Or when we invaded Afghanistan? Or Somalia? Or when we attacked Libya? Where was this uh, Foresta guy? That was different. Uh-huh. Yeah. Exactly. No, it's just, it is. It's a nasty hit piece. And I think, as you point out, you know, some of these people, some of the, you know, I, I don't want to dismiss, you know, I, I think there can sometimes be a rush to say it doesn't matter because they're not important. And I don't think that right. is, uh, that's the correct take. But, but in the case of some of these people, as you say, Samir Khan, what? Just, yeah. sh she shouldn't be allowed to have an opinion on Twitter. I right, guess. Right. And that, well, that's should the be line here. that should be enforced by the, the companies themselves. This is this is bad. And, and I have to add another thing because <laughs> we, we I mean, please, I, I I'm reluctant to because I, I believe that it's irrelevant. But it was brought up in this article. Mm -hmm. And I want to say that in the context of the article, it's irrelevant. Mm -hmm. One of the criticisms that. That this Foresta levies against Lee Camp. Is that he interviewed. Scott Ritter. Yeah. Okay. Oh, my God. And then they say, okay, while Scott Ritter was right about Iraq and WMD, why didn't Lee Camp say that Scott Ritter was a registered sex offender? Well, maybe because it was irrelevant to the discussion about Ukraine and Russia. Mm -hmm. You know, Scott Ritter 
will answer any questions that anybody poses to him about his arrest and conviction. He and I have had a conversation about it. My position on sex offenders, especially on child sex offenders, is crystal clear. I've even been in mainstream documentaries. Hello, NBC and Peacock Network. Hello. Um, talking about sex offenders and child sex offenders. But it's irrelevant in this context. I'm also of the belief that everybody deserves a second chance, right? Mm -hmm. And if Scott Ritter wants to try to rehabilitate his reputation by, by leaning on his expertise or relying on his expertise on military movements and weapons of mass destruction and things like that, like I said earlier, God bless. I wish him the very best of luck. But to criticize Lee Camp just because he interviewed Scott Ritter, I'm sorry, that just goes nowhere with me. Well, yeah, I mean, and I'll say yeah, some people deserve a second chance. Most people, maybe not everybody. Not everybody. But, but also, again, you know, sure. OK, where where is like, are we shutting down uh, Bill Gates verticals in The Guardian because of exactly. his friendship with Jeffrey Epstein? You know exactly. what I mean? Are we are we saying Hillary Clinton can never run for office again? I, I mean, I don't want to be whatever. I'm not yeah. apologizing for, for anybody here. What we are asking for is for even handed treatment. In, in these situations. And that yes. is definitely not what we're getting. Also worth mentioning that uh, Mint Press, uh, another independent outlet, after having been dropped from uh, GoFundMe, has now had their PayPal account locked. Yeah. So again, the, you know, the use of financial instruments to yes. try to cut off the means of survival of these independent outlets. So yeah, it's a, it goes on day in and day out. It's a theme. I agree. I agree. Even poor Ben Norton, who makes so little money that he had to move to to Latin America I to mean, make again, ends meet. These guys are greedy. Are you kidding me? <laughs> are you kidding me? It's so offensive. It's so stupid. And again, yeah. And again, these are the voices that the fact that Lee Camp has a Twitter account, the fact that the Gray Zone exists as a as a media outlet, and you can go and read it, are drowning out the pleas of victims of uh, war in Ukraine, yeah. in Syria, wherever else. Look, I just, I beg of you to look at any front page. And That's right. Any, the editor working on this story, and it wouldn't say, really? You think, you think they'd be drowned out? Idiotic. Please. Anyway, John, I know you had something to say about cr crimes not against media. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to say something again about crime. Uh, you know, we've talked oh, a little bit on the show, uh, and, and this is a theme in the mainstream media that, that crime is up a lot. It's been soaring since the beginning of the pandemic, the, the pandemic with rates of murder, rape, armed robbery, violent crimes, making their biggest jump since 1997. Um, I put 15 years in the script. That is incorrect. It's 25 years. This is becoming something of a, of a campaign issue uh, for Republicans. And uh, it looks like they're going to try to um, try to rely on a law and order platform coming up to, to the uh, midterm elections and then onward to 2024. Uh, there are recall elections pending against a handful of district attorneys around the country, one of them being Chesa Bodine. So Chesa Bodine is the relatively newly elected uh, DA of San Francisco. And he's, um, he's quite progressive, right? Mm -hmm. His parents were were uh, members of the Weather Underground. Uh, he visited them in prison until his mother was finally released when he was an adult. Uh, he, was, he was adopted and raised by Bill Ayers, who we've had on the show. 
Well, um, the San Francisco Chronicle did an editorial today saying you can call Chesa Bodine a lot of different names, but incompetent is not one of them. The rise in crime is not Chesa Bodine's fault. The rise in crime across the United States is not the fault of progressive district attorneys. Um, it says that the only way to bring down crime, and I'm going to blow our horn here, is to implement the kinds of programs that you and I have talked about, things like prison training programs, um, prison education, universal health care, including drug treatment uh, programs, robust mental health programs, which nobody has, maybe even a basic living wage. There's, there's no quick fix to rising crime. There's also no reason to sit here and wring our hands over it. Like, oh my God, what are we going to do? Because we have to solve it in the next six months. You can't solve it in the next six months. It might take six years or 10 years or 20 years. There is a fix. It's just that our political and, you know, leaders don't said, want to do it. And I know we have a, we have a guest waiting, so I, I, I want to make sure that we get to him. But also, as I said, I mean, yeah, there, uh, there's no quick fix to rising crime. But the quick fix that we keep trying to apply is uh, putting more putting more cops on the street, yeah, giving them more money or whatever. Hey, man, I, I think that uh, universal basic incomes are, are sort of have, have some fundamental flaws. But I bet a UBI would be a quick fix step on the way Agreed. toward implementing some of these, uh, you know, to buy some time as yes. you implement some of these more long-term programs. But we yes. don't see that. <laughs> we don't see that suggested as an alternative. I think you're, you're right. Yep. And we don't see it. Yep. Yeah. Thanks for that. You're welcome. I wanted to vent for a minute. You're welcome. That doesn't mean I'm giving you universal basic income. Just no. The, just the idea. No, no. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Let's let's move on to our next guest, John, unless I'm cutting you off. Yes. If it's okay with you, we're not going to go to a break. All uh, right. Break. Cool. Just bring Is that on. cool? Yeah, okay. absolutely. So, um, U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres uh, finished a visit to Kiev today. Uh, he finished that visit as the city was being hit by a missile attack. The Russian defense ministry said that it had hit a Ukrainian arms facility. The Ukrainians in turn complained that the missiles had targeted a residential area. Um, the Pentagon says that Russian troops in the meantime are making gains in the east. Uh, this was kind of a backhanded compliment. Uh, because they went on to say that the Russians accomplished this by withdrawing troops from Mariupol. I have no idea if that's true. Uh, meanwhile, there have been some political developments in Europe. Sweden said that it would not put its decision to join NATO once it officially makes that decision to a popular referendum. Instead, there will be a parliamentary vote, and then that's going to be the end of it. And the Finnish president said that Finland and Sweden would, quote, cooperate in the event that the Russians threaten those countries if they decide to join NATO. Nobody seems to know either what cooperate means or what threaten means. And I'm wondering if this is just meaningless rhetoric. Uh, in other news, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, that's the U.S. government's propaganda radio outlet in Europe, said this morning that a journalist for its Ukrainian language service was killed in a rocket attack and two British mercenaries were arrested by Russian troops. We don't have any further information on that. There was one American killed today. We're going to talk about that in a couple of minutes. Mm -hmm. So we're joined by international affairs and security analyst and friend Mark Sloboda. Welcome back, Mark. John, Michelle, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on Political Misfits. Well, we love having you. And if uh, if our chat is any indication, our listeners love having mm -hmm, you. Mm -hmm. So we're glad you're back. 
We uh, do you want me to do this first one? You want to jump into it? Yeah, yeah, let's just jump into it. We're kind of going to jump around here, Mark, because as we were saying, it gives like today we have an opportunity, I think, to get into some undercurrents of this conflict. And I want to start with this news that a 22 year old U.S. Marine veteran has been killed in Ukraine while working for a private military contractor there. So he was being paid to go and and take part in combat. Uh, The man's name was Willie Cancel. He's a resident of Kentucky. The thing is, we have gotten a a lot of information about this stream of individual volunteers who have supposedly been driven by their consciences to go and fight for Kiev. I'm wondering if their numbers might be exaggerated. But this is a different matter. This was someone who was getting paid by a contractor. That contractor hasn't been named. We've asked other guests about what they know of, uh, you know, of any of the world's major military contractors being active in Ukraine. And and everyone has sort of come up with with nothing, with this sort of sense that, yeah, they're probably there, but we don't know who it is. And I'm wondering if you know anything about the presence of Western military contractors in that conflict. Uh, yeah, well, no, I don't know any specifics any more than either of your guests do. But we do know that CNN uh, reporting talking to the ex the expired uh, Mr. Cancel's family, uh, they said that he was working for a private military contractor that was brilling, bringing people to the conflict, reportedly being paid $10,000 for a sign-up bonus and $2,000 a day, which is far more than anyone in the Ukrainian military uh, is getting paid uh, for uh, fighting for the Kiev regime. Uh, so that is uh, rather isn't interesting. And the fact that this is being uh, you know, arranged not on some individual volunteers, but rather uh, by an active Western um, uh, mercenary company, uh, bringing them there to fight. And, you know, I mean, this is a tragedy. This is a 22-year-old guy. Uh, he had nothing to do with Ukraine. He probably knew very, very little about what uh, has actually been going on in the con the history of the last eight years of the civil conflict, and so on. And he leaves behind a wife and a seven-month-year-old child. For what, you yeah. have to say? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, his wife, you know, it spoke terrible. to the press and called him a hero. A hero. I don't yeah know exactly what he did heroic he was a mercenary involved in a war that was none of his business and now his child is going to grow up without a father i mean he this is this is not you know u.s mercenaries doing guard duty in a third world country they are going into a conflict with a major world power that has thermobaric weapons and fighter bombers right okay um it's I, I think a lot of people have bought into uh, more than they were, you know, perhaps expecting for. And I think a lot of them have been misled by a constant stream of disinformation and propaganda by the Western mainstream media with the idea uh, that that Ukraine is winning this war and and uh, the ghost of Kiev is flying over Moscow and the Snake Island martyrs ghosts are 
taking uh, Kamchatka or you know you know ridiculous uh, uh, stories um, uh, you know of, of a very one-sided and largely mythological narrative of this conflict that is encouraging these young men and young women to go and throw their lives away on on something that they have been completely disinformed about and we have heard um, from a French journalist uh, Regis Le Sommier, um, who um, was interviewing a number of these um, uh, foreign volunteers uh, from other countries that had gone uh, to Western Ukraine and then uh, quickly left. Uh, but they said that they thought they were fighting in some type of international foreign legion, you know, right. bringing up memories of, of the Spanish Civil War and Hemingway or something. And th they said right out, right, we found out that this was under Pentagon control. <laughs> this is <laughs> uh, that uh, and of course, it's not being reported in the Western mainstream media, but. You know, that's, uh, you know, uh, it doesn't fit the narrative. Uh, so I, I strongly recommend people to to uh, you can find uh, on YouTube and elsewhere the interviews. Uh, Regis Lasami uh, uh, talked about this and uh, and the, the mercenaries he talked to or, or the volunteers, uh, depending on how you want to phrase it, said they, they were kind of surprised to find out that the Pentagon was actively running how the foreign legion uh, was being composed and what they were doing. Well, let me add something to that, too. Um, if you haven't seen The Guardian today, don't miss the interview with the great, what's his name, uh, Nance? Uh, Malcolm uh, Nance. Malcolm Nance. Oh, Malcolm Oh, Nance. my God. Self-promoting. <laughs> if, if you haven't seen it, he goes on about this great international um, unit that is fighting embedded with the, uh, the Ukrainian military. That's just simply not true. And um, he says that he's being paid by the Ukrainian military. Uh, but the reason why he's there, quote unquote, fighting, which he's not, because you remember the interview that he gave with MSNBC last week, he was holding an AK-47 and had no clip in it. So he's not even Isn't been given like any. 60 something? Yeah. <laughs> but he said that that one of the reasons why he's there fighting is because of the respect that the Ukrainian people have for the black man. Okay. <laughs> no, serious. This is, it's pathetic. But he said that there are far more Nazis and neo-Nazis in the United States and in the U S military than there are in Ukraine and in the Ukrainian military. And if you want to look at Nazis, he said, sure, there might be some Nazis, in the Ukrainian military, but there are more Nazis in the Russian military. And if you're going to fight Nazis, you might as well fight them over there. Um, but with that said, the United States has more Nazis and they don't like black people in the United States. Well, I mean, we, we do know that America has neo-Nazis and we also oh, sure. know yes. that they went to train with the Ukrainian neo-Nazis who are course. part of their military because the FBI told us so. So I don't know what kind <laughs> of um, uh, self-promoting dog and pony show yeah. that Malcolm Nance it was is shocking. being led on. But, you know, perhaps he should hang out with Azov uh, Battalion in, yeah. in uh, the Azov Stahl steel plant and, and uh, see how Crazy. Uh, their respect. If you go to the Guardian, I mean, it's the, right the there at the top. Of Azov, the founder of Azov, uh, Belitsky, 
who is now a member of the Ukrainian parliament, the Rada, said that the national idea of Ukraine must be to lead the crusade to save the white race. Oh, my. Oh, my God. God right. Right. I mean, you can't get much more neo-Nazi than that. I mean, what do, no. what do you what do you think of that? I mean, yeah. I haven't heard that Azov has renounced <laughs> the views of their founder or yeah. anything of the sort. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it's it's sickening. It's sickening. I want to ask just quickly, Mark, so we can get to some other stuff. But, you know, this uh, the existence of this uh, Ukrainian International Legion has been sort of taken for granted. And and it's uh, I mean, I think Joy Reid a couple weeks ago was saying there were 20,000 soldiers in it, whatever. A Ukrainian defense official today said that uh, an American, Britain and Dane who have been fighting with that legion have been killed. But also recently you have had some American reporters really questioning the size of that legion. And I wanted to get your your thoughts on it because you have um, a reporter who we've been referencing quite a lot recently, sort of serendipitously, this fellow Seth Harp, who I think is a freelancer, who writes a lot for Rolling Stone and who has been in Ukraine recently saying this is ju- it is just not he, he has not seen much evidence of it. Right. You have a, co- a couple of, uh, you know, you have a cosplayer like Malcolm Nance. Obviously, you have a few people who have gone out there. But the idea that there are, you know, perhaps tens of thousands of foreigners fighting for Ukraine, he suggests is, uh, you know, more sort of narrative support for Ukraine rather than reality. Yeah, I, I've seen other numbers uh, and they all match up nearly identically with the Russian own numbers of how many foreign fighters are are mm. uh, fighting in Ukraine, and that's more like a thousand. Um, and uh, they've largely been spread out as well, and and they're principally serving as as cannon fodder, uh, you know, for the cameras to try to generate enough outrage when they uh, expire uh, to. Um, you know, uh, incite some type of emotional demand for uh, Western intervention to Russia's intervention in Ukraine, which, you know, is is exactly where everyone wants to go with this. The other um, issue that has been raised recently is is that we are now what, two months into this conflict. And if you regularly look at any front pages of any major uh, American newspaper, you probably could recite some figures on on Russian losses, right? Russian military losses, something like 86 generals have been killed. X number of planes have been downed, whatever. There's really nothing about Ukrainian military losses. There's not a lot of, uh, you know, casualty statistics, visits to the front line, visits to field hospitals. And so it's sort of you get a steady um, stream of data on Russian military losses and data on Ukrainian civilian losses and a blackout on the sort of reverse of those two. And I was wondering if you could uh, fill in some of the gaps and maybe talk about why (laughs) this might be happening. Yeah, because this is an information war. Mm -hmm. That's why. Um, because I mean, even the best, uh, you know, supposed best U.S. military analysts on the Russian military, like Michael Michael Kaufman at the Center for uh, Naval uh, Analysis, ahead of the Russia desk there, Rob Lee, um, uh, a fellow. Um, uh, also, uh, who have been widely cited in the press, they say they do not talk. First of all, they say they don't know much about the state of the Ukrainian military, which makes their analysis really kind of one-sided when they don't know 
<laughs> the losses, uh, which uh, they say must be substantial, uh, uh, and then then leave it there uh, of uh, the Kiev regime's military forces, uh, and then say what they do know they won't talk about because they're on one side of the conflict, um, and, and you know they they're they're quite you know open about that, uh, which which kind of in, inhibits their their analysis uh, to a pretty significant degree. There, I, I think it's pretty hard to find. Uh, an objective analyst in all of this, I would guess to say. I certainly wouldn't claim to objectivity myself, having having family in the Crimea and East Ukraine. But we're certainly seeing a one-sided view of this, and and it's because there's a whole lot of OSINT and and film propaganda propaganda by Zelensky and everything um, uh, coming out of the Ukrainian side, while the Russian side, their military is actually keeping fairly tight operational. Uh, control of their mission. The Russian soldiers don't have mobile phones with them. Uh, they're they're not supposed to, and and that seems to be pretty well enforced. They're not uploading vills of every destroyed Kiev regime military vehicle and the like. Uh, so we are seeing an extremely one-sided uh, view of the conflict and 90 some percent of that comes either from uh self-promoting Kiev regime forces like Azov like the boatsman boys you know the the, the neo-nazi particulars or from the regime itself which has also told us such great stories about the snake island martyrs the ghost of Kiev the bombing of Chernobyl and Baba Yar and and all of these other uh, fictions that are have been heralded in the Western mainstream media as, quote, noble lies, unquote. I've got to ask you about these latest developments in Finland and Sweden. And the reason I, I want to ask you is because it's all very confusing to me. We saw these news reports, oh, I'm going to say about two weeks ago, saying that uh, the, the projected um, vote in the Swedish parliament to join NATO was 94 to 6. That's that's what people in parliament had declared 94 to six in Sweden, in Finland, 100 to zero wanted to join uh, NATO. So the Swedish government now has said that that once this vote is taken, they will not put the question to a popular referendum. So the, the Swedish people will not have a direct vote on whether or not Sweden should join NATO. So my question then, Mark, is. When did this this change take place from these two neutral countries that have been neutral, you know, through wars and through thick and thin and great international developments? When did this change? More importantly, why did it change? And how did those two countries get to the point where they so or, uh, appear to so desperately want to join NATO? Yeah, OK, they haven't been neutral for decades. Okay, that's a fiction. Uh, hmm. uh, Finland and Sweden are both de facto members of NATO. They're already at NATO uh, uh, capability levels. They're trained to that level. They're equipped with NATO standard equipment. They've been training, uh -huh. doing military exercises with NATO for uh, over a decade now. They're extensively working on interoperability. Uh, they're, they're, they, they are de facto NATO. That's why Russia is – only making kind of token noises uh, in protest about right. this. It is not the same thing at all uh, as it is for uh, Ukraine being dragged into NATO. 
the political elite have been pushing this in the country for a very long time. The biggest problem was that the domestic support in both countries was well below 50 percent. Right. But here we've got the shock of the circumstance, the hysteria around it. And we've seen popular opinion in the public on both sides suddenly swing because of the Russian threat. Right. The outrage uh, in favor and the political elites are running with it. And particularly right. in Sweden, the numbers are just over 50%. So they're not quite willing to risk what they regard as a sure opportunity to uh, get in uh. with a referendum when it's just over, you know, 51, 50 some percent. Um uh which which is, you know, it is a big, huge jump, but it's a little too close for call. That's why, you know, not not every NATO member has had a referendum on, sure. on joining. Uh, but the political elite are, quick, are, are jumping on this very quick to ram it through before there's any type of a closure to the, the conflict in Ukraine or any type of reflection or assessment about what is actually going on. And is, is this actually going to increase or actually decrease uh, Sweden's uh, security and, and, and stability in the region. Interesting. I also wanted to ask Mark, sorry, I took a bad time to have a drink of water, but I was so thirsty. <laughs> I wanted to ask Mark if there have been any updates on um, payment mechanisms for Europe to buy Russian gas. Uh, earlier this week, of course, we were treated to reports that Russia was blackmailing Poland and Bulgaria. Yeah. You know, because Poland and Bulgaria had refused to use the system in place to make sure that Russia could actually get payment yeah. for the gas that it was, you know, providing. And so I wondered if you could talk to us about, you know, which other nations have found ways to pay for their gas and whether you think Poland and Bulgaria are going to hold out or if they are going to quietly start paying uh, in rubles at some future date. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, this is hilarious. Um, uh, they're accusing Russia of of weaponizing energy and everything. I'm like, hello, you have weaponized your entire economies and your control of the global financial system on an existential economic war on Russia. Yeah, your contracts are void. You have made your own currency that you use to pay gas worthless to Russia because of your sanctions, right? And your your theft of Russian foreign currency reserves and assets. So um, yeah, you have to pay in, in gas. You have to pay in rubles now or you, or you don't. And you actually, the mechanism is all done internally through Gazprom Bank. They have to have a, uh, a one, a euro account or dollars and uh, then a ruble account. And actually the uh, conversion is made internal to the bank. All they've got to do is deposit it uh, in the account. Then there is a uh, internal foreign exchange market where Russian importers will bid on the euros. And uh, as long as there is enough European uh, uh, imports for Russian uh, or exports for Russian importers to buy, then the conversion will take place. It's actually important that it's not automatic that way. Um, already, supposedly, some four um, unfriendly, I mean, countries sanctioning Russia are already paying in rubles. Another 10 have already opened the accounts. Uh, Bulgaria and Poland were the two that weren't even hemming and hawing. They were saying, we're just not going to do it. Russia cut off the gas. Bulgaria's prime minister is already saying, wait, 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 maybe we'll pay in rubles. Yeah. And Poland 
is simply buying Russia gas at a markup from Germany and saying they're not buying Russian gas. They're not paying rubles. That's right. Germany will be paying the rubles for Poland. <sighs> so uh, Poland's ridiculous domestic politics can say, we're not paying, we're paying more, and it's still Russian gas, but we're getting it via German middleman. So we're not we're, we're not paying rubles because we're principled. Yeah, and, that, that's and, like the you know, fruit hats, in the Middle East. To that. The, the, I, I've said before, <laughs> the fruit in the Middle East, it's all marked pro, produce of Cyprus on every crate. Well, Cyprus couldn't, produce that much fruit in five years everybody knows it's coming from israel they rebox it in cyprus and the cypriots get a kickback it's the same situation here i want to go a little bit farther afield also because you know this is sort of geographically distant but i think maybe not so remote thematically uh but there's been outrage outrage and you know uh, supposed fear over China and the Solomon Islands entering into a security yeah. agreement, right? The U.S. does not want China to use this security agreement as a justification for building a base on the Solomon Islands. And so the United States, while officially it opposes spheres of influence and wants to act like they, they don't exist, but when the Solomon Islands decides that it wants to exit Washington's, the response is, you know, financial incentives, renewed diplomatic initiatives. I didn't know that we had closed our embassy on the Solomon Islands like 20 or 30 years ago. Oh, I, di I didn't know that. This is what I read today. Today I learned that. Um, and so they said, no, no, we're going to reopen the embassy. We got all these uh, financial carrots. And uh, in case none of those please you, well, we're just going to start sailing our warships around you, you know. And so I Freedom wanted to. Freedom of navigation exercise. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I mean, come on. I would just wh what do you make of this response? Right. I, again, it, it just sort of like gives the lie to this idea that what we are doing around the world is trying to to prevent the development of spheres of influence. Well, we know this can't really be the response right. because the U.S. government told it that countries have the sovereign right to make their own security decisions like Ukraine, right? Yeah. I mean, that's what they're, they're told. They can join an, an, an alliance or make bilateral treaties if they want, except for, you know, except for you know, when it comes to us, then yeah. then the rules are different yeah. because we set the rules in the new rules based international order. And, uh, you know, Solomon is is not. A, first of all, the Solomon is not even talking about a military base. They have a security agreement to help mostly to help provide internal security uh, for um, uh, themselves, uh, for their own island, uh, for for political stability that's actually what the Chinese are mostly going to be involved in there but yeah the the Western response from this is is very apropos and and extremely timely uh, while they're saying the exact opposite of what they're doing in the Solomons uh, with regards to Ukraine um, and they've even said as much they've refused to rule out a military response if China does set up a base there. Mm -hmm. uh, and the truth is that the, the, uh, the, the government of the Solomon Islands is uh, really, really sick of Australian and U.S. Yes. meddling in yes. their country's affairs. Mm -hmm. that's right. And that's why they want the Chi they, they want the stability uh, that the Chinese will help provide them there, uh, both, you know, the uh, social, political and the economic stability. And but, uh, you know, um, the U.S., 
has some well over, well over, some 800 military bases around the world. And the next two countries following are, are France, are uh, the United Kingdom and then France. Uh, but my God, God forbid that China gets one or two military bases, then it's the end of the world in the US. It's a threat to their national security and so on. Uh, and it, it it is also timely to remember that the United Kingdom had already announced that they were building military bases in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, Russia shouldn't at all feel threatened by that, though. No. Right. It's such a, if the stakes weren't so high, it would just be pure comedy. That's right. And we'd, and we'd be tired of it and going, please, could you do something a little yes. bit more subtle next time? This is kind of insulting to our intelligence. But unfortunately, yeah, it it's not. And this is the world we live in. Oh, well, Mark Sloboda, international affairs and security analyst. Always great to have you on to uh, to break down this, this cosmic joke that we're in the midst of right now. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou, turning to more uh, domestic issues and talking about the a little bit more about the the mixed economic news we got yesterday. Yesterday we talked about GDP, about interest rates, about the strength of the dollar, etc. Today I want to talk about. Corporations, prices, profits, and why so far, you know, after a, a candidate who who really campaigned on taking on white collar crime uh, is really just finger wagging uh, as of today over all of it that appears to be going on. Joining us for this conversation is Steve Grimbein. He's founder and CEO of the nonprofits Real Progressives and Real Progress in Action. He's the host of the podcast Macro and Cheese. He's an MMT evangelist. Steve, thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me on. Uh, so uh, I want to talk about this this report in The Guardian that took a look at whether corporations were really feeling inflation just like us and only adjusting their prices to, you know, keep up with commodity costs. So it analyzed the top corporations' financial and earnings calls. And I hope you are sitting down, Steve, because it found that most of these guys are enjoying huge profit increases and passing on costs to customers. So, I mean, catch your breath here. The analysis of SEC commission filings for 100 U.S. corporations found net profits up by a median of 49 percent, but sometimes uh, in percentages higher than 100,000, even as they were saying, hey, guys, look, I know I know that your paycheck hasn't gone up at all, but we have to raise prices to cover our new higher costs. And, uh, you know, I know you are not asking, Steve, whether their employees are at least making money because you know the answer. They are not. And so in a moment of widespread suffering, economic suffering, there is one sliver of the population who is feeling no pain at all. And it is, of course, the people who can most afford it. And so I I am just going to give you one detail of one company here, but you can go to that Guardian report and see lots more. But this one company is Chevron. Chevron's 
240% profit spike was part of the best two quarters the company has ever seen. And on this earnings call, Chevron promised shareholders it would keep production low to maintain high prices. And so this is just a great example. These prices are being passed on to the consumer because, oh, God forbid, we can't pay more for these commodities. In the meantime, they're not suffering at all, much the opposite. Uh, so I want to ask Steve if anything else in this report jumped out to you. And then I want to get into how do we reverse things like these price increases, right? Will companies drop them when inflation falls? Are there existing mechanisms to force prices down? Should we be looking into creating new ones? How do we how do we back up out of this situation? All right. So first of all, absolutely nothing, not one single word in this report causes me to have any flinch at all. Mm -hmm. This is so predictable. It's unbelievable. And I think the the people that this report is most shocking to are those people who, particularly on the left, who claim to be woke revolutionaries while simultaneously carrying the bag for sound finance conservatives thinking they're woke. They use the same language. They use the same identity. They use the same lens. And then they come back in the left circles talking about the value of the dollar. They start talking about commodity price. It's the same exact thing. And and it's not going to change because what's happened is all these executives, there is no like uh, automated price increase thing that happens when something triggers and raises prices. These are all human beings sits there and says, how can we make money? They say, okay, our new policy is we're going to raise prices 25%. And and we're going to say that it's because of this, because all those same lefties out there that are so woke are busy talking about how we're printing money and it causes inflation. So they know they've got the Dumbo crew <laughs> saying Dumbo things. And they're like, yeah, here we go. We're going to win again because yeah. the Dumbos <laughs> are going to do it for us. They're going to cover us, guys. Look at the left. They're talking about printing money. We can't, we can't beat this, man. We don't even have to do anything. Get out of their way. Let them do it. Yeah. And that's what's happening. And and it's depressing as a lefty um, trying to talk economics to lefties is almost it's almost easier talking about QAnon stuff with righties than it is talking about econ with lefties. <laughs> and so these guys know that they've got us snowed. They know that we're still carrying the water for a lot of really faulty logic. And they know that we're not terribly interested in learning different. So as a result of that, this I mean, this is literally a magic trick. They are literally pulling the wool over our eyes. The media eats it up. The me- oh, well, you know, because Biden has spent – Biden spent squat. In fact, we're heading toward a recession because he hasn't spent squat. They're out there celebrating, literally reducing the deficit like, like it's a good thing. But what's happening is, is that when you turn the spigot off on federal spending – you literally create the recessionary uh, conditions. And so these companies, knowing full well what's going on, are literally jacking the prices up. So none of this surprises me, not even a little bit. I, I, no. there, might have, there was a little bit of time during the pandemic where the absolute supply chain failures shone a very, very bright spotlight on logistics, understanding you know, national logistics, understanding how we can control our own emergency situations. It's shown a very bright spotlight on the problems of global 
uh, globalism, or in this case, you know, multinational farming out of labor around the world. So we got to experience that, but we never learned the lesson. And because the media is so absolutely all encompassing and, and it is the, the great teller of all the lies, we are filled with this. And the companies that pay the cost for those media outlets to put out that propaganda are thanking them in spades. And, and, and this is what you've got. So absolutely none of this is surprising to me, not one ounce of it. Steve, I want to ask you about Amazon. Amazon yesterday, after the markets closed, um, announced a sharply lower revenue <laughs> that they attributed to the end of the pandemic, right? People aren't stuck at home being forced to order things on Amazon. But analysts said months ago that the reopening of the economy was already built into Amazon's share price. So it, it seems to me, you know, people are still going to need to buy supplies. You know, I, I, I still need to buy uh, filters for my, for my air conditioning unit, for example. Um, does this mean that things are going to improve for mom and pop stores around the country, that, that small business owners are going to get a little boost for this uh, because of this? Or is this just an anomaly and, you know, Amazon is here to stay. People are going to choose Amazon over local uh, small businesses. What, what exactly are we looking at here? I can't tell if this is good news or bad. I, I think it's kind of like sleight of pen also a little bit here. Okay? That's what it seems. What do you have going on in Staten Island? Right now you got Kristen Smalls revving up the union yep. uh, stuff. So naturally, Amazon's got a totally different war on their hands that they didn't anticipate having to fight. Okay. Right. They got labor rising up once again. So, you know, when whenever you're trying, if you're a football player or whatever, and you're trying to negotiate the next deal. The ownership group always comes in and talks poor mouth. They always show the book. See, we're bleeding out, guys. Your salaries are killing us. And then the next day, as soon as they sign it, suddenly record profits in the NFL, right, or whatever. It's the same thing here. I really believe, honestly, that the, the, the days of small mom-and-pop shops are sadly largely over until somebody does something with regulation or – you know, really understanding free markets are not free at all. They're government created and it's a government policy, not some miracle hand of the invisible hand. OK, right. And Walmarts of the world have displaced all of those things just as much as Amazon has. So the, the, the small mom and pop shops are competing not just against mail order, but against every if you go down the road, every single community has a Walmart, maybe two Walmarts. Yes. Maybe three Walmarts. And they have the greatest supply chain management ever, even though you could go into them and see the, the shelves were empty, right? Right. And part of this is a business decision. And you saw in the very article that you're talking about from The Guardian, how real estate, these developers intentionally slowed the building of, of, of new units out to create Think about I, – I, I hate to backtrack on myself, but think about what they do whenever they launch something like PlayStation or Xbox. Mm -hmm. They mm -hmm. intentionally come out with a decidedly low amount, not because they couldn't have produced an extra 2 million of them, 
but because they want to create a sense of scarcity yes. that makes that you feeling like you're in an, an exclusive club. Right. That you were the one that got there. It was worth waiting outside Best Buy for six hours in the middle of the night to get your chance in an Xbox or whatever. This is all intentional. They're creating a feeling that you won. The, the, you're a millionaire now kind of thing, you know? And so a lot of this scarcity is there, but you also on the, the real estate side, you got to realize there's something that, and you guys have talked about that. We, I think we've talked about it before. And that is that you got groups like BlackRock that have been steady buying up properties all yeah. around the country. Yep. You're right. While they're simultaneously squashing the new creation to artificially prop up the scarcity that doesn't have to be there while simultaneously not even filling many, many of these houses are empty. Many of these units are empty. They're just squatting on them. And so, you know, this is all a rich man's game once again. And it's a political decision by our government to allow it to happen. And and none of this is is some miracle of God that suddenly on high these inflationary prices came as a result of some, you know, they printed money. So naturally the computer says, oh, we got to raise rates. No, this is all 100% like very, very unscrupulous, monopolistic uh, activities. We should be getting into the old Judge Green breaking up Ma Bell moment as opposed to allowing consolidations constantly that literally leave you without any prayer. And and I'm going to throw one more thing out there that, that may or may not resonate with you. Saudi Arabia a few years back jacked down, not jacked up, but jacked down the prices of uh, of crude. Why did they do that? Think of one of the countries in South America that lives almost exclusively on crude, right? That they, they, their production is crude. And Venezuela, right? So what do you do? Once that happens, they are able to literally bankrupt them into these IMF type situations. They took control by driving the price down. It's the same way driving it up as well. Hey, Steve, I'm going to stop you there so we can take our quick break, but we're going to come back and and continue this conversation. So I'm going to take our quick one o'clock break here. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. We'll be back in one minute. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou, and we are continuing our conversation about uh, corporate greed and what we can do about it with Steve Grumbine, founder and CEO of Real Progressives and Real Progress in Action. Steve, you were talking about, uh, you know, the way businesses act to ensure their own profits uh, at the expense of everybody else. So I want to ask you to to finish that thought there. But the other thing I want to ask you, I mean, we've talked about, you know, why this is happening. I want to ask whether there are current existing mechanisms to force prices back down if, as we've detailed, the the invisible hand of the market is is not going to do it. So let me let me just finish the uh, Venezuela thing, because I think it's important to see it in both directions, because you can raise prices up the gouge and you can drop prices down 
to crush your competition by making them mm-hmm. go belly up. And when you look at countries like Venezuela that require foreign reserves that they can only get through selling exports by by acquiring reserves to maintain their balance of payments, they when when a place like uh, you know Saudi Arabia, the Saudi Arabian OPEC type uh, companies are uh, you know lower the the price, they can literally bankrupt a country like Venezuela and bring about those conditions that bring it to its knees. So th- these are things that happen on a grand scale, country to country, and they happen on a minor scale, company to buyer and seller and, and shareholder. And so the real story here comes down to government policy. Mm-hmm. And you know w- we have the ability to do various things. We have capital controls. We have price controls. We have uh, regulatory reform. But we really ultimately don't have the apparatus in place, you know, it's there in name only, okay? But a lot of these things are underfunded, these, these monitoring and these auditing and these uh, control mechanisms are, are barely a shell of what they need to be. Uh, and you can see that with the lack of prosecutions for corruption throughout the, uh, the entire finance sector, um, it, it ultimately it's a paper tiger. And so they pay lip service. You have a guy like Biden who is a dyed-in-the-wool neoliberal who, who lives and dies on this kind of stuff, you know, hand-waving that we're going to do these things. But ultimately, the types of things they would need to do would sadly look a lot like state-based intervention, yeah. which is counter to every libertarian, every neoliberal privatization scheme known to man. Yeah. So all the tools that are there other than hand-waving and nice speeches – require a real, you know, meaningful step yeah. towards government intervention. And, and, you know, I'm, Hey, I'm all about it. I'm good with that. Yeah. They're not. And, and so that's, I think that's really what it comes down to. Let me raise, since, since we've brought it up, let me raise this uh, report that was done by public citizen that found that corporate prosecutions, you know, so this sort of intervention, these uh, enforcement mechanisms, had reached a record low in 2021. So it started, it was a decline that was accelerating under Donald Trump, but in, continued under Biden, again, despite an administration that came in saying they were going to crack down on corporate crime, they're going to make you know rich people pay their fair share, that is, again, openly blaming corporations for inflation, right? Um, the report says, prosecution rates have been slowed by some holdover effects of the Trump administration and that Biden has done some good things like increase penalties for corporate crime and widen the scope of who can be held accountable for corporate crimes, et cetera. But as you were saying, Steve, if these things exist and you don't use them, they might as well not exist. Um, but so yeah, I, I, they're underfunded, too, by the way. I'll keep going. I'm sorry. No, no, exactly. I mean, this is it. We've we've talked about this on the show many, many times. If you are serious about something, then you will fund it and you will staff it. Right. But the other interesting aspect of this report found that the Justice Department's use of what are called corporate leniency agreements as an alternative to bringing criminal charges against uh, lawbreaking companies remains extraordinarily high under Biden. And I wonder if you could talk to us about some of these corporate leniency agreements. You know, what, what does that look like and what kind of effect they have? Well, let me just be clear. I'm not an expert on this particular area mm-hmm. right here. I, I can speculate with the best of them. Um, but the bottom line is, is that neoliberal 
politicians, neoliberal business people, neoliberal non-government entities all favor business being free to do what it wants to do, okay? So these kind of agreements, without having all the specificity necessary to, to be able to detail it, fit right into that framework, okay? This is, this is honestly probably the hardest thing for people to understand is that there is an ideological framework that overlays all of what we're seeing. It's a deep, deeply held belief that business should be king and that government should just be there to arbiter issues of private property. And, and at the end of the day, it's there to facilitate their Ayn Randian objectivist goals of achieving the maximum maker level while penalizing the maximum taker level. Um, it couldn't be more out of Atlas Shrugged if you tried, you know, fountainhead kind of stuff. And so while they pay lip service because they would be shot probably in office if they actually said what they were trying to do, um, they instead, like I said, hand wave at us that they're going to be the most this and they're going to be the most that. And these kinds of agreements are just backdoor ways of ensuring that all the rhetoric stays rhetoric and that the teeth are left in the denture jar on the counter. I mean, there's no teeth to it. It's it's nonsense. So, again, if you understand the business model, see, it's it's. I find it challenging because most people default to the word capitalism, and while capitalism in and of itself is really a description of a balance of ownership between capital and labor, neoliberalism is a more purposeful definition of mass attempts to privatize and mass attempts to liberalize markets. It's an entirely different ideological overlay to capitalism. Um, and, and it's not to downplay capitalism, but capitalism is more of a kind of a, a Rorschach test, a big blot on a paper. It doesn't really have that kind of same detail that you'd like. Neoliberalism right. is a very specific definition, and that's what you're seeing there. Well, let me ask you, Steve. I mean, I think I, I agree. I, I don't think the Biden administration has any intention of or the, the capability of, of uh, you know, meaningfully curtailing corporate profits or, or actually cracking down on this crime. But we are getting to the point where, you know, people are... Uh, People have seen their paychecks really eroded by inflation. Uh, there is actually quite a lot of, well, quite a lot of noise in some areas of the press about these uh, astronomical corporate profits at a time when uh, when people are suffering. And so I am wondering if you would expect a cosmetic move by the administration to to give the appearance that they are cracking down on on somebody or other, that they're going to sort of tighten the reins on on Chevron on, or on Steel Dynamics, which is a, another company that comes up in the Guardian report that has been not materially affected by inflation, but had seen their profits increase by more than 800 percent. Would you like what kind of a cosmetic move could the administration make to to make it look like they're doing something? I think a cosmetic move would just be great speeches. Oh, I, I don't no. think, oh boy. I don't think there's going to be a whole lot of anything, honestly. I mean, you'll have Elizabeth Warren come out there and tweet her outrage. Yeah. Um, you'll have, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton on one hand, uh, enjoying the fruits of all that 
ill-gotten gains while simultaneously, on the other hand, shouting down about it from the catbird seat, waiting for 2024 to see if she can reemerge. I mean, you know, it's going to be a lot of posturing because you've got elections coming up. Yeah. And and just just put it in perspective, right? Biden right now, without any effort whatsoever, other than lifting his Mont Blanc pen to sign student debt cancellation, won't do it. He won't do it. But yet that one thing would make him the most popular president in the history of the United States, probably. Okay, that one move and he won't do it. So if you think about why he won't make regular people whole by simply eliminating student debt, which is up around two trillion right now. okay, you don't have to look very far to realize he's not going to do anything substantively on the other side either, because those handlers, those people that pay to keep those politicians in office that fund those campaigns and so forth, they're not going to allow that to happen. I mean, just think about this. If you read the other day on the Hill, talk about how Joe Manchin has gone up 16 points in terms of popularity. He's only gotten more popular being resistant to this, being obnoxious and and obstinate. So if you think Biden is going to suddenly crack back and bite down on the hand that feeds, it's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. If it does, I will be blown away. Even even a superficial hand wave would blow me away. Um, But I don't see anything coming at all. Zero. All right. Well, let's continue to be depressed and talk about uh, Medicare and our health care <laughs> system. I, I, wanna, I, wanna, no. I wish I was farting up rainbows and making everybody happy. I swear it's just that bleak. It really is. It's all right. You know, I mean, when, when there's life, there's hope, right? So it's, talking about the That's situation true. as it is doesn't mean that you are resigned to it continuing to be that way. Uh, That's right. So let's, uh, but you know, let's talk about our shoddy healthcare system. There was a report released yesterday by federal investigators that revealed that every year, tens of thousands of people enrolled in private Medicare Advantage plans are denied necessary care that should be covered under the program. And so these Medicare Advantage plans are private insurance plans that offer mm-hmm. Medicare benefits, except when they don't. Uh, I saw the New York Times reported that these plans are used by 28 million people. Uh, a Kaiser Foundation report saw that shows that in 2020, 40 percent of Medicare beneficiaries were enrolled in these plans. That was about 24 million people. So it's a lot of the population. And often these plans are less expensive than Medicare, but they carry with them the same restrictions that private health insurance brings, which include, you know, limits on what doctors and hospitals are in your network. So the report found that in the claims it reviewed, uh, 13% of the requests that were denied should have been covered under Medicare. In 2019, investigators estimated as much as 85,000 beneficiary requests for prior authorization of medical care were improperly denied. Uh, The plans also refused to pay for legitimate services. 18% of payments were denied despite meeting Medicare coverage rules. An estimated 1.5 million payments for all of 2019. In some cases, these plans even ignored prior authorization So you'd say, hey, is this covered under my plan? Yes. And they refuse to pay for it. And so here we have a a government health care program that is being operated by private companies in the case of these Medicare Advantage plans. And so uh, these results, I think, are not surprising. The question is, why are we continuing to do this? Uh, You know what? If you hit rewind on this interview. Right. (laughs) 
<laughs> I know. I, I you not, if we if we all if we all clung together, locked arms, and walked down the street together for real, and like blocked traffic, and said, "We're not moving off this street until you guys understand what neoliberalism is doing to this country." If we did that, we'd probably be mowed down or something like that. They'd probably find some excuse to to do so. But the fact is, is that it's going to take that level of effort. We, we've got to make this concept that known because Joe Biden will literally, if given the opportunity, will absolutely privatize Medicare. He will do that. He's already, he will have no compo- no problem with it whatsoever. It's ideologically simpatico with them to privatize these things. It's ideologically simpatico with Hillary to privatize Social Security. All of these things that are not paid with our tax dollars, you got to lose that mindset right. altogether because that's another thing that keeps us in chains. But they literally will privatize all of those out of that very same ideological um, overlay that is so prevalent. And this right here, what, what is a business's role? To maximize shareholder profit. Shareholder profit comes at a result of reducing costs and elevating profits. The way to do that is either to cut payroll or to limit services, especially in the service-based industry like this Medicaid. So their role is to be in the service denial business. Yeah. And so this is part of their business model. I mean, it's not even surprising. It's like, yeah. Which is an outrage when it's your health care, right? I mean, an explanation offered for why Medicare Advantage should exist is that Medicare's billing structures incentivize doctors to overcare for patients. And so when you put it in the private sector, it's openly acknowledged that the health care, the health insurance industry is in the business of denying care. It's in the business of collecting money. Uh, you know, against future disasters and then denying care when these when these disasters or illnesses fall upon them. I mean, it's it's right there in black and white. And yet that will be pushed. You're right. That will be pushed as a, a solution for our health care system. Let's exp- oh, let's expand uh, the ACA to, you know, bring more money to insurance companies. Yeah, this is it. And, and, and I want you to realize this. And, John, I know that you've been around the block, so you know this as well. This is the, the government's business model for the country. This is the economic strategy. Mm-hmm. This is the plan. If you notice, the financial sector, the fire sector, their profits are through the roof. Oh, yes. People are most mm-hmm. in the stock market. I spoke to an economist the other day, fantastic guy named Eric Dean. And he says, you know something? He goes, the days of Jack Welsh, where they would have all these different companies building things. He moved that to money market cap, money manager capitalism. Basically, these companies that they own are nothing more than a portfolio, and and it's a it's a stock portfolio they manage. And when a company is no longer number one or number two, they divest themselves of it, not because they're making anything, but because that's the financial trough that they feed from. And it's the same exact thing with with the markets. People are making money. I'm watching people that are supposed lefties that have stopped any kind of meaningful activism and are just literally living inside of investment, talking constantly oh about their stock portfolio, et cetera. Oh and you're like, oh, my God, we're losing more activists by the minute. Mm-hmm. This, this is it. This is, this is where it's going. So what you're seeing is the norm. That's it. 
That's the game. I was going to ask why then this uh, this propaganda uh, about how, uh, you know, private companies always do it better. Privatization is good. It's it's efficient. It streamlines. It creates competition. I was going to ask why that propaganda is so effective. But I mean, the reality is, if you ask the American people and you can phrase it in different ways, but if you ask them if they want a, a single payer health care system, they, most of them will say yes. Right. So people do know what they want. And I guess my question is, you know, other countries do not Look, other countries have different healthcare systems, health insurance programs. They have their benefits and their flaws. But I would say uh, no peer nation and uh, very few of our non-peer nations have systems that are as obviously uh, just blood sucking as ours. And I guess my question is why I, I think the trend is toward Americanization of healthcare. Right? You see the NHS constantly under threat. You see the expansion of um, private insurance in the UK. Uh, why were we first, I suppose, is a, is a, is a question. Why are we the, the, the uh, you know, the lab rats for this, for ne- neoliberalism? And I mean, at Chile, of course, you can talk about the birth of neoliberalism there. But, you know, wh- why are we the cutting edge in this? Yeah. So go back to World War II. All right. And you could go back further than that. And I would love to, but you can read Howard Zinn to get some of this. If you start at World War II, though, we had just, quote unquote, defeated fascism. But we saw Uncle Joe over there in the corner gearing up the communist machine. And so what did we do? We not only meddled with the Chinese revolution that was occurring at that moment, but we then in turn started creating the WTO, the, the IMF, the World Bank, and all these other things, you know, the Peace Corps, you name it, to stave off communism from coming. The the neoliberal project began in earnest right then. And so the neoliberal project has always been about liberalizing markets, doing everything that I've already just said, literally everything that I just said. And it started out with the idea of if we take these smaller nations and we help them gain a good capitalist market footprint, and this is before capitalism got where it is today. Neoliberalism had gotten where it is today. But at that time, the idea was, let's make this more appealing to them than communism. And we can keep communism at bay by going in there with these loans to help them facilitate their transition to this modern economy. Well, little by little, as that goes on further and further, the extraction Colonialism took on a different look and feel. Back in the day, we'd go raiding countries. We still raid them, but not the same way. Back in the old days, we'd take over, we'd plant shop, and we'd make it our own, part of our empire. Now what we do is we just create markets, and we use the IMF as the tool for empire to do the very same thing. So I've often said that neoliberalism is the U.S.'s top export. Yeah. It is our number one export. We're privatizing the UK. We're privatizing Australia. We're helping privatize. We, we privatized the damn Soviet Union, right? <laughs> I mean, we are in the business of privatizing. And that is the strategy. So when you see this happening, you must understand history. You must not look in the, just in this moment because this moment is, is, is a blink of an eye. It's an instance. It's a Band-Aid on a heart attack. You've got to look at the larger picture and understand this steamroller has been going on for a long time. And so one of the things that – and I just spoke with a Pakistani economist the other day named um, Akhtaz Apsal, 
And Akdas talks specifically about the beginning of time and the rise of fascism. And what happens is, is when you make government so incompetent, so absolutely feckless, so small that you could drown it in a bathtub, okay, mm-hmm. then it, it, it always will fail you. So every time you point, the, the Republicans, these guys, if nothing changed, if they didn't know any better, these Republicans hating the government, they get some of this right, because, but they think it's, that's just the way it is. And that's naturally government, so naturally it sucks. But the truth is, is that they have purposely done this. This is going Mount Pellerin Society, Milton Friedman and that whole gang have been instrumental. The Chicago School's been instrumental, and they have been masterful. And this is why when you hear good-hearted lefties want to have a, a constitutional convention, they don't even understand that the other side's been planning that for 50 years. Please do. Please be that bonehead to lead us into that one. Please, we're desperate for you to do it. <laughs> they have been planning this forever. And it's not even a conspiracy. It's wide open. This is not like one of those Rothschilds, hey, are we going to make him slip on a bar of soap or spike right. his Earl Grey? You know, this is like real legitimate stuff. This is the model. And once you see the model, it stops being confusing. Everything makes sense. It literally stops be- that dissonance between what you think you're hearing and what you're seeing. Yeah. You immediately see it for what it is. Yeah. And I think that that is what you're dealing with is that people, while they want single payer, they have been led to believe that government is incompetent. Mm-hmm. They've been led to believe that government is incapable. And yet we are the government that can literally control the globe with a single piece of paper, you know, that we, that everybody's so hell bent on this dollar thing. Yeah. Well, what happens if we lose our dollar uh, reserve? Absolutely nothing. We bring freaking manufacturing back home. Now we've got to deal with the waste and the smog and all the other stuff that comes with mass industrialization again. We, we have all the plants. We just have to bring them back to life. Okay. It's not, it, 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 people don't understand this stuff. And so it becomes mystifying and baffling. And, and the reality is, it's just a simple matter that we allowed ourselves to become a consumer of everyone else's goods, extracting their goods for cheap pieces of paper. But what happens when they combine themselves together, like you're seeing in Russia and stuff like that? And they say, no, mm-hmm. now we're going to go ahead. We're, we're good. We're, we're going to do our own thing. Over here. We don't need to be part of your SWIFT system. Well, now all of a sudden, different groups that were dependent on imports from those places are like, what do we do? And so this is what happens when you become a nation full of importers. Yes, you can maintain that for a while, but ultimately the business model will demand more and more profits. It will demand more and more leeway to make the, the, the calls to eliminate government from space. And, and it will take over and dominate. And you see that happening in the U.S. And the reason why it happened specifically in the U.S. is because that's where our Constitution was even created. It wasn't we, – we, we lionized the revolution that brought this country into existence when in reality the revolution was nothing but a bougie revolution to begin with. It's a bunch of rich people that want to pay tithes back to England and wanted to keep their own stuff here. And, and then they – I mean – you, Zim is masterful in showing how the storage houses would be full of grain and the people would be starving, but they wouldn't give it to them. Why? Because they needed to discipline the people. I mean, a great <laughs> anyway, a great metaphor for today, storage houses full of grain and people starving. Steve, we got to let you go. But, but before we do, why don't you let our listeners know where they can find the work you're doing uh, today? Absolutely. So come to our website, realprogressives.org, and you can find everything. Or you can go to our YouTube channel. Uh, which is um, Real Progress in Action. 
Um, you can also check out my podcast, Macro and Cheese, on Saturdays on all podcasts. It, it's a literal audio podcast. Um, but I'm also, for, for all intents and purposes, I'd like you to know, also, I do a show at Status Coup now on Thursday nights called Let's Get Ready to Grumble. And I usually take on one or two or three related items and do a three-round knockout mm-hmm. um, to kind of lay it out. And just last night, I took on Elon Musk and this whole concept of private property. Mm-hmm. So catch me all over the place. He's all <laughs> over active. the place. Lots of places to find you. Steve Grumbine, thanks as always for joining us. Thank you both. You're listening to you. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. It's time for Politics Friday, where we look at some of the most important races and political issues in the country. And today, we're going to talk about those close Senate races, and we're going to talk about student loans. Yesterday, actually, no, I have to introduce our guest. We're joined by Ray Valencia, who is not just a Sputnik News analyst, but she's also the producer of this show. Welcome, Ray. So yesterday, we had Brian Doyle on the show, and we talked about the Georgia Senate and gubernatorial races. Well, there were some new polls out today. I was surprised this morning to see them on Real Clear Politics, and they're quite dramatic, so I wanted to raise them. In the Senate race, former football player Herschel Walker is leading his closest rival by 56 percentage points. He's still hanging in there. 62 to to 6. 62 to 6. But he's losing, in the latest polls, to Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock by 5 points, 50 to 45. This is exactly what we were talking about yesterday, where we said that old saying, can't lose in the spring, can't win in the fall, is exactly what's happening in Georgia. Yeah, so the ads running against Herschel Walker really didn't have the impact that the the GOP was seeking out. No, and that primary is getting closer and closer and closer every day. You just run out of runway. Exactly, you run out of runway. That's exactly Um, right. As in Ohio. In the governor's race in Georgia, and we're going to talk about Ohio because there's a lot going on there. In the governor's race, Governor Brian Kemp Leads David Perdue by 25 percentage points. Oh, he's points, crushing it there. 56 to 31. Kemp, in turn, leads the likely Democratic nominee, Stacey Abrams, 50 to 45. Uh, remember, Donald Trump endorsed Perdue and has worked hard to defeat Kemp because Kemp would not throw Georgia to Trump um, in 2020. That's just not working out for Trump. Kemp is quite popular. It appears that the Democrats have yet another problem on their hands, Ray. This one is in New Hampshire. Uh, Senator Maggie Hassan is up for re-election, and there's a whole host of Republicans that are looking to take a shot at her. A new poll released yesterday shows Hassan winning by spreads of one percentage point, one percentage point, and six percentage points. And a fourth poll has her losing to a Republican candidate by two percentage points. Now, these are against four different Republicans. 
So she's winning, winning, winning by 116 and losing by two. So besides Georgia, Arizona, Nevada, the Democrats now have to worry about New Hampshire. Yeah, and that primary is far off. That's September. It is. And there's a lot that can happen between now and September in terms of Biden. And right. I, my concern for these later primaries is really the economy. Yes. Um, the stock market is very volatile right now. I've worked in financial service before. I remember the 90s. I remember what the tech stocks look like. It's looking like that again, right? They're falling today. The Nasdaq's down pretty, pretty hard. And we tend to get stock market, more stock market volatility in the fall. Stock market crashes tend to happen, not from market highs, but while you're in a correction. And we have an environment of rising interest rates. So it's just going to be a really turbulent um, political season for Democrats up it against is. an economy like that. One of the things that Hassan has going for her is the fact that she's not running against the incumbent governor, uh, Sununu. Sununu is very popular. No one's coming anywhere near him in the gubernatorial race. And he was thought to be a shoe in for this Senate seat. And he just decided he doesn't want to, to be do in the Senate. Yeah. Yeah. He's also repeatedly taken on Donald Trump directly and by name. And uh, Trump will have nothing to do with him. Trump has said some really nasty things about him, uh, but he doesn't care. He just doesn't care. Yeah. The whole Trump endorsement, I think this thing has a half-life. It's tending to wane. Yeah. And May 3rd is going to tell us a lot. A lot. May primaries are going to say so much. And I think the reason why Trump isn't endorsing in Missouri in these later primaries yes. is because he's wanting to see, do the wait and oh, see. Oh, yeah. He wants to go with the winner. Yeah, he wants to go with and the winner. And he doesn't know who that's going to be yet. I want to say one quick thing about Nevada. We talked about Nevada last Friday. Uh, we told our listeners last week about Senator Catherine Cortez Masto and the tough race that she's in. Well, a slew of new polls came out uh, this week. Uh, yesterday and the day before, showing her beating Adam Laxalt, the former attorney general uh, and grandson of Senator Paul Laxalt, beating him by eight points and beating Sam Brown, the war hero, by eight points. A poll by a newspaper in Reno, Nevada, shows Cortez Masto beating Laxalt by eight points again, but losing to Brown by one point. I, I've mentioned before, Brown is a is a very attractive candidate in that he's a decorated bona fide war hero he was grotesquely disfigured uh in a in a an attack and a, a resulting fire that burned his face um he's a mainstream conservative but his name is not laxalt and he doesn't have adam laxalt's kind of money in any other year and probably in any other state, uh, Brown would be looking at winning a Senate seat. And I think it's not going to happen for him in Nevada because he's losing to Adam Laxalt by 35 percentage points in the Republican uh, uh, primaries. Um, I wanted to say something about Ohio, too. You and I were talking about this off the air before the show started. Something strange is happening in Ohio right now in the Senate race there among Republicans. Uh, we said yesterday and last Friday 
that Donald Trump's endorsement of J.D. Vance, the author of Hillbilly Elegy, uh, could be the game changer, right? Vance, as soon as that, that uh, endorsement came through, Vance jumped from third place to first place. And even though it's still close, he was in first, 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 all through these latest polls. Well, there is one candidate among Republicans running for the Senate there who refuses to kiss Donald Trump's ring. Uh, that's a state senator by the name of Matt Dolan. And Matt Dolan is very, very wealthy, personally wealthy. He and his family own uh, the uh, Cleveland Guardians, the baseball team formerly known as the Cleveland Indians. So he's poured $10.4 million of his own money into this Senate race. And, you know, he's a state senator. If you, if you are so rich that you can't even count all the money, why in the world do you want an $80,000 a year job as a state senator? It's not about the salary, is it? <laughs> it's not. It's about the power. So Matt Dolan says that he's running as a traditional conservative. He has repeatedly criticized Donald Trump. He has said that Donald Trump lost the election in 2020, that Donald Trump has to take responsibility for his actions. He spent $10.4 million of his own money in this Senate race. And there were two polls that were released this morning. And in those polls, in one of them, he has jumped to second place, two points behind J.D. Vance. And in the other, I'm sorry, one, one point behind J.D. Vance. And in the other poll, he's in first place, two points ahead of J.D. Vance. Trump is worried enough that this morning he released a statement saying that Dolan is unfit, unfit to right? serve yeah. in the U.S. Senate. And why is he unfit exactly? Why is he unfit? Because he changed the name of his baseball team from the Indians to the Guardians. Oh, that should do it. And that is offensive to racists everywhere. Are you a racist? <laughs> <laughs> the primary is May 3rd. Yes. That's, so, that's, that's next so week. close, right? Yeah, that's next week. Because we were talking about uh, Mandel and Gibbons, right? Right. We yeah, were talking no, about and then, Mandel. Yeah. And, and the funny thing about Mandel is he's already lost three statewide races. Yeah. So he's up there. You know, he was first. He was second. Now he's third. So the distance that Dolan has made it's in remarkable. such a short time. In, in two weeks. So if he could keep up that momentum... You know, wow. it's May 3rd, though. That's next week. It's next week. This thing is and we will be really watching. interesting. And I wanted to say one other thing before I turn this over to you, because you have some substantive issues that you want to discuss. President Biden's approval ratings are still mired around 40 percent. There are various polls that have in between 39 and 43 percent. Um, and there were a bunch of new polls released yesterday that had more bad news for Biden. A poll by Harvard University shows him losing to Donald Trump by two percentage points. And a poll by Insider Advantage shows him losing to Trump by four percentage points. The worst news for Democrats is that if Kamala Harris were to be the Democratic nominee, she would lose to Trump by double digits. It would be a landslide of historic proportions. So there's really no good news out there for the Democrats, at least not nationally. No, and Elizabeth Warren has been sounding the alarm bells, too. You know, we're talking about student loan debt. But before we leave Ohio, yeah. I just I was Lay out of curiosity. Me. I had to watch the hillbilly elegy. 
you know, and yeah. see what J.D. Vance say is it, about. I but I actually enjoyed it. It's, it's a, I actually recommend that people watch it because if I did not know who J.D. Vance is today in terms of running for Senate and his platform, I would imagine he could be a progressive. You know what? It's funny because when I, when I read the book at first, I assumed that he was a progressive, right? Because with his background, how you end up as a conservative pro-Trump Republican I just, it's, I I don't understand the disconnect. Because the issues in the, his kind of autobiographical, you know, account was he struggled with student loan debt was one of them, right? So he's. And his mother with drug addiction. Yeah. And his mother with drug addiction, a nurse. um, Uh They lived in Appalachia. Addicted from prescription drugs. It wasn't fentanyl. In, you know, brought in from Mexico, which he's he now saying about. it was his his new ad says that um, his his mother struggled with drug addiction because of the Mexicans pouring across our southern border. It's like, dude, do you not read your own autobiography? He completely changed the narrative. He lied about it is what he did. Yeah. And Democrats are calling him on this. You know, this is something that the Democratic Party thinks the Republicans are testing in some of their mm, advertisements. That's interesting. This notion that that illegal immigrants are voting Democrat. Yes, and that they've they're been this for and a that while. they're mm-hmm. smuggling drugs to wreck our society. And they're contributing to the high crime, the high surge in that's crime right. that everybody's fearful about. And, and there's literally nothing to prove that right. any of that's and true. And the GOP is running hard on this. Matt Dolan, I did a little kind of looking yeah. around. He's running ads about, um, you know, violent crime and he's getting endorsements from law enforcement and stuff like that. So he's really running as this traditional Republican, but the law and order thing is going to be a platform for the Republicans yes. for sure. I think that's right. Yeah. So um, tell us a so little Monday, bit about what okay, you're hearing about. Yeah, uh, Joe Biden, right, yeah. uh, met with the Hispanic uh, Congressional Caucus and had mentioned something about doing Something about student loan debt before mm-hmm. the midterms. And so during his presser this week, he was asked by a reporter, you know, what are you going to do? And he intimated that it's not, it's going to be some relief. He's going to announce it in a couple of weeks, but it's probably not going to involve a $50,000 student debt forgiveness. And a lot of, rep- uh, a lot of Democrats were running on this. They wanted and, and uh, we should Joe add Biden too, to do it. And Elizabeth Warren. Well, there was a leak from the White House last week saying that, that saying the exact opposite that there are private discussions uh, in the Oval Office about doing away with all student debt. And, and now we're hearing, oh, no, no, not only is that not true, but the exact opposite is true, that they're not planning to do anything about student debt. And, and $10,000. I mean, I'm sorry. I've it's been not going to really help. We've all been to college, yeah. right? Yeah. Even $50,000. Even $50,000. Because 000. the interest rates on some of these loans are so high. Yeah, I was talking to a friend last night. He says, it, it will make no difference to me because no matter what, my expectation, my understanding is my basically 13% of my earnings for the next 25 years will go toward paying this loan and then it will be forgiven. Yeah. And whether you lop $50,000 off of it, which I might have accrued in interest of, in you know the 10 years since you left college, makes no difference. You're still paying. It, it is the... Uh, immorality, really, of of this system, right, uh, is hard to overstate, especially if you grew up in the era of like Suze Orman and to, to fi- mm-hmm. financial, hey, financial literacy for for right. ladies. There's right. good debt and there's bad debt, and student right. debt is the good debt. Yeah, 
All imagine. Right. Yeah. Can you imagine? Yeah. No, I mean, I was there. You don't have to imagine. <laughs> yeah. 43 yeah. million Americans. So $50,000. It, it sounds like a lot of money, but it's not a lot of money if you're talking about a, a loan that's $100,000 earning 8% interest. You know what I mean? It just isn't. Oh, yeah. Our engineer here went to John Hopkins, $180,000 in student loan debt he's paying off. Who went to Johns Hopkins? Saul. Why he went we- to Johns Hopkins? <laughs> I didn't know that. God bless. As $180,000, bless his heart. Yeah, let's, oh. uh, but I mean, okay. the, it's, it okay. is a terrible that system to be sense. locked in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you had me there for a minute. So that, so that amount of money, yeah. So $10,000. And Biden is losing support among young voters who went out and voted for him in anticipation that they would receive some relief. And he's lost that support by some 18 to 20 percent. And those are the voters the Democrats are really going to need to win in these competitive races. And if you lose early, it's just going to make it so much harder later into the fall as we get into the later primaries. Right. So the student loan debt, one point seven. Grumbine mentioned close to two trillions, but one point eight trillion dollars in student loan debt. When I was first covering it, it was a trillion in 2013. And Elizabeth Warren at the time was explaining to people that Congress sets the rates. Congress can set the student loan rate. They review it every year in the spring, and they tether it now to the 10-year Treasury note. And it could be zero if they wanted it to be zero. It could be higher. Republicans have always said, we want a market-based solution. We want to tether it to the market. Now what with interest rates going higher? What is that going to do? to student loans, you know, the new borrowers, it's going to be. You know, part of the problem, too, is that Congress passed a law, um, what, I guess it, during the Obama administration, that that student loan debt is exempt from uh, bankruptcy. Yes. And you so. you got to carry it around with you. You, you, you can have, you know, a quarter of a million dollars in student loan it's debt. It's like a form of debtor's prison. Yeah. And even if you declare bankruptcy, you still have to pay. To pay back the quarter of a million. There's just no way out of it. There's no way out of it. And 40% of student debt holders don't have a college diploma. Mm-hmm. You know, so there are ways to target this to provide the most relief to the people that need it the most. You know, income caps, um, relieving debt for people that don't have the college degree, right? Uh, a lot of Republicans are saying, okay, so you wipe out the debt. And that's just going to create a moral hazard. It's going to encourage people to take on more debt. Hmm. Yeah, there's... It's just... You know, we say all the time that there's no easy solution to problem A. There's no easy solution to problem B. There is actually an easy solution to this, but Congress doesn't have... The political will to do it. No, no. Congress could change this in an instant. And Biden has said, you know, pass something, I will sign it. And the Democrats are their own worst enemy. We have Democrats that you got fiscal conservatives, such as Cinema and Manchin, that's going to take the teeth out of it. So it's, you know, the Democrats being their own worst enemy, not passing this. And it's going to result in falling poll numbers among the people that you need to come out for you the most. Yeah, I, I have to agree. Um, I think that this midterm election is going to look a lot like 1994's midterm election. It's going to be a bloodbath for Democrats only because they can't get their act together. You know, in 94, 
Newt Gingrich, as bad as he was, he came up with the so-called contract with America, and that thing had legs. And they did exactly what they said they were going to do. Well, the Democrats are flailing around right now, not knowing what it is they want to do. Oh, they've got this idea, they've got that idea, but then Manchin votes no, and Cinema's a no, and so they're not going to be able to do this, and then they talk about the Green New Deal for a minute, and then they talk about student loans, and then decide that they can't do the student loans. Okay, then they're going to lose the election. That's what happens. So, we will talk about this a lot more, and in the meantime, we're going to take a short break, and then we're going to come back with news of the weird which is my favorite thing of the week. Stay tuned to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We'll be right back. to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. I'm John Kiriakou here in the studio with Michelle Witte. It's Friday, and that means it's time for News of the Weird, where you, we bring you some of the more oddball stories in the news this week. And Michelle, I'm going to start again this week, as I did last week, in England. Citizens in Cornwall, England, are fuming about the St. Blaise Town Council. The St. Blaise Town Council ordered that the city cut down or cut 1,000 daffodils what? in what's called the old Roslyn play area. And they said that the reason why they have to cut all these daffodils is that daffodils are poisonous if eaten and they give children diarrhea. Okay. Okay. A spokesman for the, the play park committee called the move preposterous and quote, totally bonkers. Unquote. He went on to explain that the land was once an orchard and was home to so many daffodils that a part of it was called Daffodil Walk. Residents took to social media, as you might expect. They were very angry. They were protesting this nonsensical directive. One of them said, quote, when I was in primary school, every year we were given a daffodil bulb to grow. Funny, I don't remember trying to eat them. Yeah. Or anyone being poisoned. Yeah. Unquote. Another yeah. one said, daffodils are also poisonous to dogs, but even my mutt has the common sense not to eat one. Yeah. I mean, uh, there's all kinds of plants that we just don't eat. And I walk past plants all day that I don't take a bite out of. And, no. you know, you should be careful with children. But again, it's sure. not like, uh, you know, I bet there are also mushrooms growing there. Right. That you might not see. Seems silly. Seems silly. Especially if the if diarrhea is all you're going to get. Also, you know uh, what? There are worse things. Take the risk. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. Well, here's a story that will begin with the moral. The moral of the story is always keep your eye on your gas gauge. You know, when I was in the CIA, they, they told us to never, ever let the gas gauge go below half because you don't know if, God forbid, you're going to be involved in a, in a long-term chase with a bad guy or a terrorist. You don't want to run out of gas, and then he's going to blow your head off. Yeah. So we always kept our gas tanks full. Okay. Well, police in Memphis, Tennessee, were called about an abandoned Chevy Suburban on the I-55 bridge that connects Tennessee and Arkansas. This was last week. The truck left in the southbound lane of traffic uh, had been struck by another car. And while police were preparing to tow away, 
tow it away. The Chevy's owner, a woman by the name of Catherine Mardesich, uh, showed up. Uh, 54 years old. She said she had run out of gas. Uh, but then when the police started to inventory the truck, which is what they have to do, she allegedly said, I don't want you going through my vehicle. And here's why. Inside, they found 229 pounds of marijuana and $17,800 in cash. No excuse for running out of gas. And the gas station was only nine-tenths of a mile away. Ah, but she should have gotten it at the previous one, and she obviously (laughs) had the money. (laughs) Yes, she did. Don't run out of gas. I have only experienced running out of gas. I never, I have never run out of gas myself. Um, And I think the only time I've experienced running out of gas in my life was on a date with someone. He took me on a date and we were driving somewhere and his car ran out of gas. And I think he did that the second time we went out. Oh, man, that's such an old trick. No, I mean, we didn't like it was a pain and it was a pain in the behind. We had to like go get, you know, it wasn't Uh, like we were like, oh, well, I guess nothing to do but have sex here by the side of the road. (laughs) I don't I don't think that was the the idea. It didn't work anyway. (laughs) There was a charity auction recently, Mm -hmm. this past week in Los Angeles, when a load of weird items Mm -hmm. were delivered to a Los Angeles area charity. Uh, A worker there thought that the donor was either somebody famous or somebody rich or somebody odd or whatever. Um, One item, though, drew the attention of the Los Angeles Police Department. It was a large stuffed reindeer that had a hole in the underside. Let me stop you right there, John. I read that line and felt very upset. I'm relieved at what you are actually going to tell us. Please continue. A staff member of the charity was inspecting the hole to see if it could be fixed Mm -hmm. when three bags of white powder fell out of it. So uh, much. Apparently was cocaine. Uh, The cops took the, uh, Took the reindeer away. Do you know how upset I was contemplating them investigating this hole on the underside of the reindeer and my relief when when, what (laughs) fell out of it was cocaine? Fine. Great story. I'm very glad. I I will admit to you that I'm addicted to one of these shows on the National Geographic Channel. Uh, It's about uh, customs and border protection. So they're at the border in... uh, San Diego, the border in Nogales, uh, and uh, at Miami Airport and JFK. And most, I don't even know why I watch it, because most of the time they're like, excuse me, you know, this person fits the profile, excuse me, uh, open up your luggage. And then there's nothing, right? So the whole show, you're like, okay, they didn't find anything on anybody. This is a waste of taxpayer money. But but last night, I, I watched one that I had DVR'd and somebody had sent this, uh, this wooden, the enormous wooden carving of a, of an elephant. And it was really heavy. It was like mahogany. And, and they said, well, it's so dense. The wood is so dense. They couldn't x-ray it. So they drilled a hole in it and all through the whole thing. I'm like, doggone you. this beautiful piece of you're artwork. Ruining, yeah. yeah. You're ruining this beautiful piece of artwork. This beautiful rare wood. And like a hundred pounds of heroin falls out of it. I mean, honestly. It's like, God gone it. Yeah. Hey, speaking of desecrating artwork, 
Your boy Jason Leopold, yeah, investigative reporter with the uh, BuzzFeed News. BuzzFeed. Did you see? Uh, he he shared a few hours ago. He says five years ago, I filed a FOIA request with Southcom for photographed copies of all artwork created by Guantanamo I detainees for that. a project I've been working on. Southcom just turned over docs and redacted hundreds of paintings citing law enforcement techniques and procedures exemptions. So you can go and look on his Twitter page right now. He has images of these paintings. So it's paintings, but then within the paintings, there will be white, just white boxes. Yeah. That have that, little notes about redactions. That's, that's it's, paintings of people being tortured. It is. is well, it some is. of these are just abstract. It's just an, it's like a painting of, of trees. I don't know oh what else is God. in there. Uh, there's one that's, uh, unless it's just a little tiny. Uh, no, it can't be all that. Who who knows what these redactions are over? But it is interesting to look at um, the lengths that they've they've gone to. One of Abu Zubaydah's attorneys, who's a professor of law at Rutgers, um, filed a similar FOIA request for Abu Zubaydah's paintings and drawings. It took years to get through the courts, um, but they finally released them. And um, and for whatever reason, they didn't redact them. I mean, they redacted some, but there were others that clearly showed Abu Zubaydah uh, uh, being tortured. And, uh, you know, they're all realistic. And they they let him out. They were actually on display at Rutgers. There was another story earlier this week about Gitmo, a story about the youngest detainee there. Yes. Who, after 20 years of detention, uh, has been cleared for release, but they're looking for a country that will take him. This is an ongoing problem. Mm -hmm. This is an ongoing problem. Um, This kid is Yemeni. He was never charged with a crime. He was never convicted of any crime. He was arrested because his brother was a bad guy. Um, he's free to go back to Yemen. Uh, we don't want to send him back to Yemen because our position is, oh, he's going to be re-radicalized and he's going to take up arms against, you know what? Who cares? Never charged with a crime. Never charged with a he's, crime. He's uh, about 40 years old. Yeah, I'm now guessing he is. he's now 40 years old. He spent all of his adult life in Gitmo. In, yeah. I mean, all of his adult life. That's exactly right. Yeah, this is, this is, um, it unforgivable. Is, it is sad that uh, no one is no one is going to be held accountable for for these crimes against so many people. You know, imagine yes. the roll of the dice, and that that's your life, right? That's your twenty years. Yeah, exactly right. Sad to contemplate. Yeah, this is a problem. You know, we we I, I did a documentary for PBS um, where we talked about these six um, uh, Uyghurs that we caught. It, it's the craziest story. We caught these Uyghurs. Couldn't figure out who they were, what language they spoke. I mean, they look kind of Tajik, maybe Uzbek. You're not really sure. They didn't understand any of the languages that we spoke. And we hit them with, you know, 10 different languages. Finally, one of the guys in my office started speaking to them in Chinese and they lit up and told us that they were Uyghur. I had never met a Uyghur before. And so they said that they were that they were so poor that they left China and they went to Afghanistan to look for work. And I was like, please. And then in October of 2001, they went to um, Tora Bora, Afghanistan, because they heard there were jobs in Tora Bora. And I said, I, come on, man, I, you're going to make me laugh now, right? You went to Tora Bora three weeks after the 9-11 attacks to look for work. Well, you know, it turned out to all be true. That's how bad things were in China. And these guys hadn't heard anything about 9-11. They were completely cut off. And so somebody told them, hey, there's this 
this town in eastern Afghanistan called Tora Bora. You should go there because they'll hire you. So we started bombing Tora Bora. They came across the border. John grabbed them and uh, interrogated them and sent them to Guantanamo. Okay, turns out they're innocent of, of anything. We had to let them go. Nobody would take them. Yeah. We couldn't send them to China because the Chinese are going to arrest them or do something to them. We ended up sending two to Albania, two to Switzerland, and two to Tahiti. I think I mentioned a couple of weeks ago. But this kind of thing happens all the time in Guantanamo. People are innocent. They're never charged with a crime. And then you hold them because nobody will take them. And you say, well, we can't possibly have a trial either because uh, state secrets. Sources and methods. Well, kind of a sad note to end the week on. But uh, listen, we'll come back and we'll have to start with that last news of the weird story next week. (laughs) All right. I want to say thanks to producer Ray and all the engineers here. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Witte, thanks for listening. We will talk to you again on Monday.